Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morris and Forster, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Hello, welcome to the Above Board Podcast. This is your host, Dave Lynn. I'm a partner at Morrison & Forster, and I practice in the areas of public company counseling and corporate governance. And I'm very pleased to be joined today by my colleagues, James Kukuyos and Nate Mendel. James is based in the firm's Washington, D.C. office, and he serves as co-chair of the firm's Securities Litigation Enforcement and White Collar Defense Group, and serves as co-head of the FCPA and Global anti corruption practice. Prior to joining Morrison and Forster, James spent 10 years at the U.S. Department of Justice. And Nate is based in our Boston office, and he's a partner in the firm's investigations and white-collar defense practice. And he served as the acting U.S. attorney for the District of Massachusetts and also served in a variety of other roles in that U.S. attorney's office. James and Nate, thank you both for joining me here today. An important issue that companies and boards of directors face is whether to self-disclose potential illegal conduct to the government. And this decision is always a very complicated one. It requires a very careful weighing of the potential benefits of making that sort of disclosure versus the unpredictable outcomes that could happen from handing an investigation and what ultimately may be a potential action to the government. Recently, on February of 2023, the Department of Justice announced a new corporate voluntary self-disclosure policy for U.S. attorneys' offices. Nate, can you explain to us the basic elements of this policy and why it's being released now? Yeah, of course, Dave. So starting in October 2021, The Department of Justice has announced several policy initiatives designed to increase corporate criminal enforcement. And those announcements have been made by Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco, who is the number two at DOJ. She acts as basically the COO of the Department of Justice, and her memos set policy for the entire department. Now, in September 2022, the Deputy Attorney General released a policy memo generally referred to as the Monaco Memo, since it was issued by Lisa Monaco. And the Monaco Memo set forth a number of policy changes. The one most important to your question was about voluntary disclosure. And the memo noted that voluntary disclosure enables the government to investigate and hold wrongdoers accountable more quickly than would otherwise be the case. That's the direct quote. Now, DOJ likes the idea of holding wrongdoers accountable more quickly, So the memo mandated that DOJ policies and procedures ensure that a corporation benefits from its decision to come forward to the department and voluntarily self-disclose misconduct through resolution under more favorable terms than if the government had learned of the misconduct through other means. Now, the memo goes on to direct that policies and procedures should, quote, be sufficiently transparent such that the benefits of voluntary self-disclosure are clear and predictable. So this most recent refinement that you asked about in February is kind of a supplement to these changes in policies, a clarification. Specifically, it's about self-disclosure. And in essence, it provides that if a company does three things, there is a presumption that the Department of Justice will give it three things. Specifically, if a company voluntarily self-discloses, fully cooperates, and timely remediates, 
then there is a presumption that the company will not have to plead guilty, will receive significant fine reductions, and will avoid a compliance moniker. Now, the Deputy Attorney General is changing corporate enforcement policy for the department in a bid to inspire a culture of compliance in the private sector. And we think her bet is that offering more predictability for how prosecutors assess disclosures and cooperation, and also offering more certainty and clarity for the benefits that flow from disclosure and cooperation will incentivize compliance. So this memo standardizes that practice across U.S. attorney's offices in a bid to incentivize that compliance. And James, what exactly does the government mean here by voluntary self-disclosure? There's about five elements that the policy says constitute voluntary self-disclosure. And I'll run through those five right now. Number one, the disclosure has to have been made to a U.S. attorney's office. And some people listening might think, of course it does. This is a DOJ policy. But the point there is that especially, for example, for heavily regulated companies or companies that already have reporting obligations to administrative agencies, it's not enough just to report to those agencies or those entities about misconduct. You actually have to also go into the U.S. Attorney's Office at the same time and disclose that to them. Number two, the company must have had no pre-existing obligation to disclose the misconduct. And what that means is it truly has to be voluntary. There had to have been no compulsion by, for example, a regulation that would require disclosure, contract clause that would require disclosure, or perhaps there was a prior DOJ resolution that was in place, such as a non-prosecution agreement or a deferred prosecution agreement that already obligated the company to come forward and disclose these things. In other words, really trying to get at this was a voluntary new disclosure, not something that was already required by something that was in place. Number three, the disclosure has to have been made, and I'll quote this, prior to an imminent threat of disclosure or government investigation. And that is actually a standard that's been around for a long time. It's actually set in the U.S. sentencing guidelines. And we'll talk about that in a moment about what imminent means. I want to get back to that in a little more detail, but that's The key here is that you had to have come in to the government before it was about to happen from somebody else. Number four, the disclosure was made within a reasonably prompt time after the company became aware of the misconduct. And number five, the disclosure included all relevant facts concerning the misconduct that were known to the company at the time of disclosure. So those are the five elements that DOJ, if those are met, would consider a voluntary self-disclosure. Now, of course, there's a lot of adjectives and adverbs in there that make it a little difficult and do cause the possibility of disagreement with DOJ. One is imminent. Essentially, what that means is if the company already knows that a whistleblower is going into the government or that a reporter has contacted you and that there's going to be a story running on the front page of the paper tomorrow morning, oftentimes DOJ might say that was a disclosure made in the face of an imminent threat of disclosure. And so you might have to argue with DOJ a little bit about whether, no, 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 you know, we didn't know if the article was going to run. We didn't actually know if the whistleblower was going to come in. 
or we didn't know about those things and we came in anyway and voluntarily disclosed this matter. So the word imminent can be a little bit of a term of art that can result in some disagreements with DOJ. Another phrase, reasonably prompt time after becoming aware of the misconduct, there's a tension here. Does that mean as soon as you get a hotline hit that you're supposed to run in and bring every hotline hit to DOJ? Or does a company get some amount of time to kick the tires in those allegations to see if there's actually any there there and whether it should actually be reported? I think most companies would agree that's a best practice. Companies that have a very good whistleblowing line get a lot of reports in, and many of them are not valid, and they're clearly not valid on their face. Some take a little bit more time to understand if they are valid or not. And I think a reasonable company would say, look, you should give us a little bit of time because it's everybody's best use of resources to kick the tires first. But that can also become a little bit of a disagreement with DOJ. Did you come in fast enough? Did you drag your feet too long? So there's a little art and nuance there. And then finally, the all relevant facts known at the time. That's another tricky issue that could cause some disagreement with DOJ. Obviously, the earlier you come in, the less you're going to know. The standard there is supposed to recognize that, that a company can't disclose all facts eventually known at the beginning when it's very early on. But there are still issues. For example, you may have known a fact early on, but you did not know that it was important. You did not know how it fit into the overall picture. And so maybe you didn't disclose it because you didn't think it was important. And so there could be some disagreements about all relevant facts known at the time. That notwithstanding, those are the five elements. And so any company that is looking to get the benefits that Nate described is going to have to really closely analyze those five elements and try to make sure that if it decides to go forward the voluntary self-disclosure, that it does so in a way that will maximize the chances that DOJ will agree that you've met that standard. And was there no self-disclosure policy in place before this latest pronouncement? There were self-disclosure policies at a few components within DOJ, like the Criminal Division had one, the Antitrust Division, National Security, but there was no self-disclosure policy that applied to all U.S. attorney's offices across the country. And I think a predictable result of that has been wide variability across offices in how self-disclosure is handled. I think that's basically unavoidable without a single policy. Federal prosecutors can refer to the justice manual, of course, but there's still just wide variability in levels of expertise and experience and even sophistication in different offices across the country. So decisions about how to reward cooperation and self-disclosure are always especially difficult to conform across all districts in a very large and diverse country. And not every office, not every U.S. attorney has the courage to give a big reward for cooperation and self-disclosure. I think this latest policy attempts to give guidance for those decisions, and it also offers cover for prosecutors to give favorable resolutions to companies that voluntarily self-disclose. I mean, I think it's going to be fascinating to see the result of the policy change. I think for sure there will be more consistency. Uniformity, I think, will prove elusive. And I mean, as is always the case, the larger districts have a very healthy sense of their own prerogatives. And so they may kind of go off script for cases that they consider exceptional or unusual. 
So the result won't be perfect, but in any event, I expect the council representing companies will be referring regularly to the policy and even appealing in instances where they think there's been a deviation from the policy. And I'd be interested in hearing how this new voluntary self-disclosure policy compares to the policies that those three components of DOJ you mentioned had put in place prior to that. And then in the event that one of those components has evolved, which policy applies, the one they had before or this new voluntary self-disclosure policy? Yeah, so Nate mentioned three voluntary self-disclosure policies that were already in place, one of the criminal division, one of the antitrust division, and one of the national security division. And probably the most analogous one to this new policy was the criminal division's corporate enforcement policy. Antitrust, as many listeners know, the way that cartels work, that there's a whole bunch of companies working together to distort the market. And so there's almost like an immunity given to the first one in the door in order to break that cartel and have companies flip on each other. That's kind of an extreme version. This one is much more like the corporate enforcement policy that's been in place since roughly 2017 and a pilot program before that. The new U.S. Attorney's voluntary self-disclosure policy is very similar to the corporate enforcement policy for the criminal division in several ways. Number one, that standard for voluntary disclosure that I mentioned is essentially the same. Both of the policies reward companies that self-disclose, fully cooperate, and timely remediate the way that Nate described it. And that the rewards for that are fine reductions and monitor avoidance. So that in the basic framework, very similar. However, there are some differences that are worth noting and can be pretty big depending on the case. Number one, the corporate enforcement policy for the criminal division has a presumption that if you do those three things, self-disclose, fully cooperate, and timely remediate, there will be a presumption of a declination that DOJ will not go forward with a criminal action. On the other hand, for the U.S. Attorney's voluntary self-disclosure policy, the presumption is if you do those three things, you will not have to plead guilty to a criminal action, but it makes it sound like there will be a criminal action nonetheless potentially available for you. Not in every case, but the presumption is just no guilty plea, not a full declination right out of the box. Now, Coupled with that, it's perhaps not surprising, there are some more stringent factors for the corporate enforcement policy for a company to avail itself of a disclosure. And that, in particular, I'm talking about the aggravating factors. Both of the policies say, if you do those three things, we'll presume to give you this benefit unless there are aggravating factors present that will not allow us to do so. And again, the corporate enforcement policy, I think because it gives a potentially bigger benefit, has more stringent aggravating factors. In particular, both of them look at things like the role of present management in the misconduct, but the corporate enforcement policy goes a little bit farther and looks at things like corporate recidivism and whether there was a huge profit gained as a result of the misconduct. And so it's a little bit easier to get knocked out of the favorable benefit in terms of the presumption under the corporate enforcement policy than under the voluntary self-disclosure policy. On the other hand, the corporate enforcement policy is more generous in that even if you don't voluntarily self-disclose under the corporate enforcement policy, you can still get a reward for full cooperation and timely remediation. The voluntary self-disclosure policy for U.S. attorney's offices 
does not provide for that. Now, as Nate said, it'll be interesting to see how this is actually applied in practice. The voluntary self-disclosure policy for U.S. Attorney's Office doesn't say it's impossible to get a reward. It just doesn't provide for a reward for those two things, whereas the corporate enforcement policy does. So it'll be interesting to see how those play out over time. Now, you asked one other really interesting question, Dave, about if two DOJ components are involved in one investigation or one prosecution and they have different policies, which one applies? And I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to see what happens over time. The voluntary self-disclosure policy does anticipate that. So let me give you a common scenario. If you have a specialized criminal division component like the fraud section, that is the exclusive section at DOJ that brings FCPA cases, but often team up with U.S. Attorney's offices to bring those cases. Will it be the corporate enforcement program that applies to the FCPA case? Or will it be the U.S. Attorney's policy because you're bringing it in the U.S. Attorney's office with the U.S. Attorney's office as your partner? The U.S. Attorney's office voluntary self-disclosure policy says that there's room to decide which one applies. My prediction would be if it's a very specialized area of law. So for example, if it's an FCPA case, maybe if it's a sanctions case that has more equity involved from main justice or a bank secrecy act, which also has maybe arguably more equity involved at main justice, that the more specialized self-disclosure policy would apply in those circumstances. Whereas if it was a little bit more of a bread and butter case like insider trading or wire fraud or something of that, that nature, perhaps the U.S. Attorney's Office policy would be more likely to apply even if it's a joint prosecution. But all of these things will be very interesting to see how it plays out over time. And I think as defense counsel, to a certain extent, we're going to have to try to say in those situations, which one will result in a more favorable resolution for our clients? and probably try to argue that one applies in a particular circumstance. I think Nate also made a really good observation. Some of the big offices who feel maybe more independent than others may try to insist that their voluntary self-disclosure policy applies even in the face of a more specialized policy. But it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. And it's definitely something that we will be watching for. Obviously, it's a big decision as to whether to voluntarily self-disclose some sort of misconduct. How are you counseling clients in light of this new policy? So, Dave, before I answer your question, I did want to say that this podcast is another reminder for me. Working with James is really a lot of fun. He's very thoughtful and knowledgeable on these issues. So actually, I'm curious to hear his answer to the question about how we're counseling clients. But I'll give mine first. I think the policy change makes the situation better for companies. I think the picture is clearer. When I was acting U.S. attorney for the District of Massachusetts, I was asked to serve on what was called the Corporate Crime Advisory Group. And that was a body that advised the Deputy Attorney General on how to make these changes, the changes that have been implemented in 2021, 2022, and then 2023. And when I was on that group, I advocated loudly for a very generous policy, a policy that afforded big benefits to companies, because I think that's necessary to provide an effective incentive. And the benefit needs to be nearly a windfall in order for many companies 
to take the leap of faith and self-disclose. But I also made clear that the Deputy Attorney General and the department needed to signal formally, explicitly, that conferring a big benefit on a company was acceptable or even required. Because out in the field, prosecutors are typically reluctant to leave something on the table for fear of being second-guessed. They don't rush to conclude that misconduct does not lead to a sanction. So the new voluntary self-disclosure policy does signal explicitly that prosecutors are expected to relent if companies take these certain steps, and it explicitly creates the presumption of no guilty plea. So it might not be quite the windfall that every company would hope for, but I think it's an improvement, and having the policy in writing is going to allow us to press U.S. attorney's offices to advocate for the benefit in a given case, saying that it's consistent with the policy, consistent with the trend from the deputy attorney general herself. So I think that's really great insight. Obviously, Nate was on the inside, and so he's able to see what the intention was. And I think that's right. On the other hand, I'm not sure it makes the self-disclosure decision that much easier for companies. As you said, and this kind of comes full circle, this is one of the most difficult decisions that a company can make. It requires a very detailed cost-benefit analysis, and it also necessarily involves trying to predict things that are inherently uncertain about what's going to happen in the future. So I think when companies are doing that cost-benefit analysis, there's some clear things on the pro side. Number one is the potential for a substantial mitigation of penalties that these policies are designed to provide. And I think Nate is right. The new policy and the corporate enforcement policy before it, they do help companies in that regard because when you're thinking about what the mitigation potential is, having a more explicit policy makes that at least a little bit more clear when you're weighing the costs and benefits. Two other pros that I think are important to think about is, number one, if you get into the prosecutor's office first before a whistleblower gets there, then there's a better chance that you as the company are going to be able to set the narrative. If the whistleblower comes in, they're going to make things seem as bad as possible, and you don't necessarily want the government to hear that side first. In many ways, it's better for you to get in there first, set the narrative, even if you decide there was misconduct, to try to put in bigger context and set that narrative. And related to that is if you get in there first, there's a greater chance that you'll be able to build trust and credibility with the prosecutor's office. And I think it's no coincidence that, for example, when considering whether to impose an independent compliance monitor, DOJ puts a lot of stock in whether it was a voluntary self-disclosure because that to them indicates this is a company that can be trusted to do the right thing. So that's kind of the pro side. On the negative side, that mitigation of penalties, even if the potential penalties are more clear, they're not guaranteed. And coming back to what I said earlier, there can be a lot of disagreement with the prosecutor's office over whether you've met the standards for voluntary self-disclosure, as well as full cooperation and timely remediation. So while the potential benefits might be clear, whether the prosecutors will agree that you qualify for them is not. Second, and I think this is one of the biggest potential cons, or at least things that should make companies think twice, once you do disclose, your fate is highly dependent on who the prosecutor or the enforcement attorney is. And not everybody is created equally. 
I don't think that's a shock at all. Some prosecutors are hard charging. Some prosecutors are lazy. Some prosecutors are obstinate. Some are very reasonable. And of course, the beauty is neither beholder. They probably think they're being hard charging and reasonable, and you may think differently. But the point is, there's a lot that can go down to just individual personalities and how the case breaks. And then last, there's no doubt that if you do self-disclose, the costs and the length of time that you're going to devote to an investigation are going to be much higher than if you don't disclose and the government never finds out about it. If they do find out about it, it may be even more costly and long-running, but there's no doubt that when you choose to self-disclose, you are upping the costs and the length of time to resolve than would be the case if you did not self-disclose and the government never found out about it. And then I think there's the third side of this coin, if that's a thing, is that this decision could be highly dependent on the industry the company is in or the company's specific position or history itself as well. So what do I mean by that? I've had some clients, for example, who do a lot of business with the U.S. government or depend on licenses from the U.S. government in order to do their business. Now, in some circumstances, there might be a requirement that the company self-disclose in those situations. But even if there aren't, I've had some clients say, look, we need to get ahead of these things because we can't have the government think that we are not a company that can receive that contract or we're the type of company that cannot be trusted to get that kind of license. And so we need to self-disclose. We need to put the thumb heavily on the scale of self-disclosure because we think our business prospects depend on it. Another example is a company that does have a recidivist history. And it's interesting, companies see this cutting different ways. I've had some clients that said, look, we've already had a significant resolution in the past. And so those benefits that Nate talked about, we really need to go get those. We need to do whatever we can to get a fine reduction and to try to avoid a compliance monitor because of our past history. On the other hand, some clients have said, look, because we're recidivist and because of all the aggravating factors that come with recidivism, it's going to be a huge penalty if we come forward and we're better off trying to just fix the problem ourselves and then cooperate and later on if we need to, but going forward and throwing ourselves at the mercy of DOJ, we do not think is a good cost benefit for us. So again, these are all very difficult decisions. Fully agree with Nate that at some level, the more express and explicit benefits may help companies make this decision, but it does not mean that the decision will be easy. And Nate, I appreciate the compliments you gave me before, but I'm wondering if you still think that I'm thoughtful and if you have any reactions to that. I can tell you now that I'm on the other side, I'm happy that while I was on the advisory group, I was advocating loudly for a very generous policy because there's a lot of uncertainty that companies have to overcome before they decide to come in. And if the department really does want more cooperation, more voluntary self-disclosure, they're going to have to be generous in applying this policy. That's obviously what we're going to be saying to them, representing clients, but I think that's just how it has to be. So we'll see how far the department goes in making their policy effective. Great. Thank you, Nate. And thank you, James, for all of your insights on this very important topic. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. 
Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.